Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, before we go any farther, I just want to say something to you. Yes. Thank you for being a friend. (gasps) Are we going to travel down the road and back again? Indeed we are, Caroline. And that road, that road starts in September 1985. It does. This is a Golden Girls Road, by the way. Right. This is a Golden Girls Road. And September 1985 is when this fabulous piece of our pop culture history debuted on NBC. And it's so fabulous that when I randomly (laughs) emailed Caroline and I think subject line, is this crazy? Should we do an episode? This wasn't all in the subject line. (laughs) Subject line, is this crazy? Email. What should we do an episode just on the Golden Girls? And you quickly emailed back, yes. And so I quickly got on Twitter at Podcast and tweeted that we were going to do an episode on the Golden Girls. And people were pumped. People are so pumped. I'm pretty sure some comments included like, oh, God, yes. Someone even had tweeted us a photo of their Golden Girls t-shirt. Oh. Stay golden. That they said that they would wear when this episode comes out. So you know who you are, and I hope you're wearing that T-shirt. And I, I want that T-shirt. Too. I like to imagine our listeners tailgating for this episode, just eating a bunch of cheesecake, so much cheesecake, wearing their Golden Girl T-shirts out on a lanai. Mm, so peaceful. But yeah, so okay. Golden Girls, amazing TV show about four amazing women, but it was also created in part by an amazing woman herself, Susan Harris. She also wrote the famous abortion episode for the show Maud, which also starred B. Arthur, and Harris created the show alongside her husband, Paul Younger Witt, and Tony Thomas. Now, Golden Girls aired between two other women-centric shows, 227 and The Facts of Life. And kind of surprisingly, both at the time and now looking back, the whole block was actually really successful among young viewers. Yeah, initially, NBC thought that Golden Girls, since it was about for older women, would really bring in the older viewers. Then they were like, oh, whoa, younger people are wa- younger people are interested in the lives of older women? Who knew? Uh, and it was kind of a risk for them because they were having a real hard time with flagging Saturday night ratings. But Golden Girls came out of the gate swinging. It premiered at number one with an estimated 44 million viewers and lasted 180 episodes, really only because B. Arthur was finally like, guys, I got to go. Yeah. See you later. And it earned 15 Emmy nominations in 1986, lived in the top 10 for six consecutive seasons, ended up earning throughout its run 10 Emmys. And then it finally ended its run in May 1992, although there was a short-lived spin-off show, The Golden Palace, that lasted for but a year. Yeah, and it was on a whole separate channel. Like, NBC pulled the plug, Golden Palace opened up over on CBS, I think. And it just didn't, it just didn't last. But I think it was Betty White, uh, I think it was Betty White who was saying, you know, it wouldn't have been successful if even if B. Arthur had stayed and one of us had left, it wouldn't have worked because of our chemistry. Because they needed all four of them. They needed all four. They were like Captain Planet. 
We need all the forces combined. With their powers combined, they are four women of a certain age in Miami. And so let's give you the rundown, because these are four women, three of whom are widows and one a divorcee, living together in a house in Miami. It sounds like the most awesome real-world season ever. But the house belonged to one Blanche Devereaux, who was played by Rue McClanahan. And of course, this does not come as news to anyone who ever watched the show, but Blanche was the saucy Southern Belle. And come to find out, she literally, I mean, directly served as the inspiration for Gabrielle, who is Eva Longoria's Desperate Housewives character, because Mark Cherry, the writer for Desperate Housewives, also worked on Golden Girls. And fun fact about Rue McClanahan and Blanche's signature lingerie-esque costumes, she kept a lot of them. There was a clause in her contract that she could take home Blanche's wardrobe, which I love. I love that, too. God, imagine how many nightgowns that woman had. You could just live in nightgowns, which when I get to the age and I'm a golden girl, <laughs> I will be living in a nightgown. Yeah, but but a sexy nightgown. Yeah. A Blanche nightgown. Um, all right. And let's move on to Rose Nyland, played by the beloved Betty White. Uh, Rose was a transplant to Miami from her beloved St. Olaf, Minnesota. And she is the airheady one, not to be confused with a dumb person. She is certainly not dumb. She is. She is, if anything, just naive. She truly believed that everyone had the best intentions. She also took everything very literally, so she came off a lot of times as just very spacey. And it's also notable that she only had sex with her husband. And I believe that they had sex for the first time on their wedding night. And Rose was very confused when it was (laughs) happening. Um, but then we get to Sophia Petrillo, played by Estelle Getty, who was the shop tongue Sicilian mother. She uh, lived with the women, in, according to the show, because of a stroke that broke the quote unquote tact region of her brain, which is why Sophia always says exactly what's on her mind. Yeah, she always definitely has a zinger, but she also served I mean, they all were kind of the heart of the show. There was no single heart of the show, but Sophia was really the character that stuck up for the underdog a lot of times. So not only would she send a zinger your way, but a lot of the time on the show, as we'll get into more, she defended a lot of the gay characters who were either uh, talked about or who appeared. Um, and then, of course, we have to talk about B. Arthur, who played Dorothy's Bornack. Uh, she was Sophia's daughter, although Oh, you guys, B. Arthur was actually one year older than Estelle Getty, but they put a ton of makeup on old Estelle to make her appear very elderly. Yeah, and Dorothy's backstory is that she was a teen mom who married the baby's father and divorced him 38 years later. She was very bitter, very world-weary, and also afraid of dying alone. Yeah, and spoiler, I don't know if you can call something a spoiler when it happens <laughs> decades later, but uh so Dorothy is afraid of dying alone and when the show ended, it basically ended with her kind of riding off into the sunset with her new beau, her new husband, and a lot of people criticize that because they're like, what made the show so amazing and so groundbreaking and so feminist and, and appealing to so many people was that the show was all about these four women who just loved each other and cared about each other and supported each other and didn't need men. And so the fact that B. Arthur's character, who's so strong and also has her own uh, arsenal of zingers that she would throw at people. The fact that she was the one who rode off into the sunset with a man sort of rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. 
But one more uh, backstory, fun fact that uh, Golden Girls fans will get a kick out of. Originally, Betty White and Rue McClanahan's roles were switched. Betty was intended to play Blanche and vice versa with Rue and Rose, but... Betty really made her big break on the Mary Tyler Moore show playing the very sexual neighbor. And so she really didn't want to do Blanche because she was like, well, I don't want to get typecast. Mm-hmm. Why don't I try out for Rose? And of course, it ended up working perfectly. It worked perfectly. And now, of course, those women are remembered for those roles that they played on Golden Girls. But... This isn't just going to be Kristen and me talking about our crushes on these amazing actresses and the characters they played and how awesome the show was, although it certainly was. But this show is so beloved and stands the test of time because it hit on so many important topics and really was able to talk about kind of controversial things for the era because it was all couched in comedy and really just like warm, fuzzy feelings. And I wonder, too, if it has to do with the fact that it was coming out of the mouths of women, yes, but these older women. Harmless. Yeah. This these harmless women hanging out eating cheesecake, talking about things like AIDS, Alzheimer's, mental illness, chronic fatigue syndrome, sexual orientation, women's sexuality, feminism, abortion, divorce, and domestic violence. Yeah, and even behind the scenes, there was a lot of, there were a lot of interesting conversations going on, and I thought that this story in particular illustrated the issue of double standards really well. This is coming from the fascinating Entertainment Weekly oral history of the show, and they talked to Garth Ancier, who was an NBC vice president during the 1980s when the show got underway, and he was talking about an episode in which Rose brings a guy home and sleeps with him, and he ends up dying in her bed and the department wrote the show back and said that this episode is unacceptable to air and they had issues with a line in the script about noise sexual noise coming from Rose's bedroom. They basically told the showrunners that it was okay for men to express themselves sexually in that way, but not women. And so Ansier says, I'll never forget Susan Harris sitting across from them in a meeting on the set in her sunglasses saying Let me get this straight. It's NBC's corporate position that women are not allowed to express themselves during an orgasm, but men are. It was very tense. Ooh, watch out, Suze. Yeah, so even even behind the scenes, you have Susan Harris really kind of stirring the pot and trying to push topics that are important. Women's sexuality is important, pushing them on TV. Well, and important, too, for the fact that these are women sometimes addressing sexuality, but they're also older women. Age obviously played a very prominent role in this. But what was so refreshing and still is so refreshing about the show is how these older women aren't portrayed as just quiet grandmotherly types who can't get around. But they're vivacious. They're employed. They're doing things. Yeah, exactly. They're portrayed as people. And the New York Times wrote about how the stars were frequently praised for portraying the lives of older women as lively, but also uncertain and dramatic and passion-filled, and just as much so as those of any college sorority sister. And this is something that Christine Brzezini wrote about in the journal Americana, the Journal of American Popular Culture, in 2010. And she points out how 
Golden Girls was not the only or the first show to focus on women of a certain age, but it was unique in its dialogue and character-driven plot that wasn't just focused on action or detection, such as Angela Lansbury in Murder, She Wrote. Or Cagney and Lacey. Yeah. In Cagney, Cagney and, and Lacey. Lacey. Which I also watched with my mother. I watched all of these shows with my mother. I Yeah. All I, of them. Uh, Murder, She Wrote was on every every time it was on. <laughs> every time it was on. It was on. Those typewriter sounds. Click, clacking, click, clacking. Or big old glasses that you can now buy at American Apparel. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely focused on these internal lives and struggles and victories of these women. It wasn't just about solving a whodunit case. Um, and not to mention, she also points out that the characters contradict a lot of the stereotypes that we have and the binaries that we have in mind when we think about old versus young. Things like able-bodied versus physically declining, ambitious versus resigned, sexually active versus impotent, optimistic versus pessimistic, you know, just stereotypically, you know, in our society, we view old people as like, all right, get out of the way. You're, you've hit a certain age. You're no longer relevant. You're no longer young. We don't care about what you're saying anymore. Yeah. And even when they did talk about aging, I mean, we mentioned uh, how B. Arthur's character has a fear of dying. That's a very serious kind of issue, but they were able to approach it, obviously, through humor. Now, granted, As the paper points out, these are stories focused on white, conventionally attractive, sexually active (laughs) women. I mean, it's it's a rather limited view, but nonetheless, it still says something that it has remained so popular for so long. I mean, it started in syndication, I think, when it was in maybe its third season and is still racking up ratings on Lifetime. But yeah, but it's not just racking up ratings thanks to our boomer parents and grandparents. It's also still drawing in younger viewers. And Brzezini was looking at like, okay, why? What is the appeal? And she talks about how the show really provided an alternative for our sort of overall fear of losing our nuclear family members who are going to be left to live alone in institutionalized settings. And how the relationships of these women and their stories really serves to quell fans' fears of aging, both young and old, by offering hope that you can still remain socially active. You can still throw zingers like Sophia does. And that the prime of life isn't necessarily just when you're 32. Although... The character of Blanche does definitely reflect that just as you can have the same passions and uh, successes as an older person as you can when you're a younger person, you can also have issues with your body image, with issues of losing uh, perceived attractiveness. And Blanche has this sort of recurring reluctance to accept her changing status as a woman who's getting older. And so the audience ends up getting a representation of many women's panic over becoming devalued in our society for this whole thing she can't help, which is just living life as an older, aging woman. Well, and what's also fascinating, too, about the fact that these are stories focused on the lives of of older aging women is that, especially in recent years, there's been a lot more conversation and focus on how gay men in particular love the Golden Girls. And it's really, I feel like, started um, around the time of B. Arthur's death when everybody when was really reflecting on Golden Girls. And you have all of these columns and articles about its appeal to gay men. Now, 
obviously there were lots of gay references and jokes in the show, a lot of which was thanks to the fact that there were openly gay writers and producers on staff, including Mark Cherry, who would go on to write Desperate Housewives. Yeah, and Michael Musto over at Out.com says that, and he's writing about this very affectionately, and he says that it was the gay show to watch, and his theory behind that, he says, was that basically... The Golden Girls were gay men in dresses at a time when there were very few public role models for gay men. And so he sort of breaks them down into their different categories. And he goes on to say that as the seasons go on in the show and the characters become more fleshed out, he writes that their leisure activities became gayer and gayer as they put on shows, dabbled in the art world and wrote love songs to Miami Beach, all while wearing outfits only a gay man or his mother could love. Well, and on a more serious note, too, I forget which article it was um, specifically that talked about how, um, and it, I think it was a, a gay guy writing about his love of the Golden Girls because they were this uh, unconventional family unit mm-hmm. where, you know, they all came from like different walks of life, but he really was attracted to that idea of forming your own family, which also at this time that, you know, that Michael, Michael Musto was talking about from out.com about when there were very few public roles for gay men. This was also a time when gay men would be forming their own families, their own family units, because there weren't a lot, there wasn't a lot of social acceptance for them, perhaps in their own families or in society at large. The writer of this post in particular goes on to call out for a similar model of communal living with new ideas about what family means. Because, I mean, the the girls, the golden girls, were not all related. Only B. Arthur and Estelle Getty's characters were related. But they formed their own family and their own support network. Yeah, it was uh, Louis Peitzman writing over at BuzzFeed who said, quote, it's a show about the construction of a chosen family rather than a biological family, a very queer conceit. And it's the whole thing of, you know, men come and go, good looks fade, but it's the friendships. Our friends are our family. Yeah, and Brzezini writes that it's this whole spirit of positive aging, basically, that having that residential support ends up being able to replace commonly accepted notions of aging as demeaning, lonely, and static modes for existence. Instead, when you have this sort of communal support living situation, older age doesn't have to be a dark time of depression and loneliness. It's a time of friendship, healing, growth, restoring, basically forming your own path, making your own path. It can also be a time of romance and activities that reflect alternative notions of what family means. God, I can't wait to retire and move to Miami. Come on, menopause, Caroline. I'm ready. Let's do it. We'll podcast from our jammies. That's right. From our nightgowns. From our nightgowns. <laughs> well, not only were there just general themes of the show that clearly appealed to gay audiences, there was also direct recognition of gay people in the show, of actual gay characters and plot lines involving sexual orientation that was pretty groundbreaking as well. I mean, there there was, for instance, the, the hilarious episode of Goodbye, Mr. Gordon, when, is it Blanche and Rose, I believe, are mistaken to be a lesbian couple? It's Blanche and Dorothy, so even better. Yeah, obviously, with Dorothy, with her, her very, very tall, broad-shouldered, husky-voiced Dorothy. Yeah, yeah, and so they end up on this talk show where they're introduced as lesbians, and they go along with it because... 
they don't they're not trying to prove a point, but they're just trying to make sure that Rose, who booked them on the show, doesn't lose her job and end up being at home all the time as an unemployed person. So you end up getting this message of positivity and acceptance that is couched in a really funny, ridiculous scenario. And fans of the show might not realize that in the pilot episode, there was actually a gay, I believe, live in cook named Coco, Mm -hmm. who was supposed to be part of the core cast. But when Sophia came on, Estelle Getty, she tested so well in front of audiences that the writers realized that they wanted to elevate her character. And that didn't really leave too much room for old Coco. Yeah, and it's not that they were giving him bad lines or that he wasn't a good character. It was sort of uh, what Michael Musto described as an embarrassment of riches. And so leaving Coco on the show, in addition to the four women, would have sort of taken away a little bit of the luster of these four women relating to each other over cheesecake. Well, and... Not all of the depictions of gay characters were all that progressive. I mean, there were the running gags about Dorothy's cross-dressing brother. Um, but then there was also a politician character who ended up being a trans man. And then there was also the depiction of Blanche's brother, in which they talked directly about his sexuality and his right to marry who he wants. And Sophia even tells Blanche at one point, that she needs to just get over being so uncomfortable with the fact that her brother is clearly gay. Yeah, because Blanche says something to the effect of, you know, I'm okay with homosexuals, but I just don't understand why he has to marry a man. And they're like, and I think Dorothy to that says, you don't really understand this gay thing, do you? But Sophia calms Blanche down and says, hey, why did you marry your husband? She's like, well, I loved him and I wanted the world to know that we were committed to each other. And Sophia, wise, wise, zing, zinger Sophia is like, well, you know, that's why your brother wants to get married, too. Well, isn't it kind of ironic, too, that later in another episode when uh, Dorothy's, I think it was like former college roommate, we find out that she was a lesbian and has a crush on Rose and Blanche is just annoyed that the lesbian doesn't have a crush on her. Oh, Blanche. Blanche. But yeah, that's another episode where Sophia serves as the voice of reason and shrugs the whole thing off and says, some people like girls instead of guys. And it's true. And it's true. You heard it here, folks, on Stuff Mom Never Told You. Okay, so we've we've addressed a lot in a short time about the Golden Girls, that they've introduced TV audiences to so many important topics all of them couched comfortably in humor. Um, and of course, we have to talk about how Golden Girls represents, but also kind of handles issues of feminism, women's issues, and female archetypes. This is sort of coming from a paper by Ann Kaler, who wrote about feminine archetypal patterns in television, Golden Girls in particular, uh, in 1990 in the Journal of Popular Culture. And without getting too much into psychology and personality types and Carl Jung, we'll, we'll leave a lot of that out. Yeah, but she, she brings up Carl Jung in talking about the Golden Girls. It's an intense paper. It's super intense and super interesting. Um, but to, to make this a little more digestible for our listeners, we'll skip ahead to basically where she's talking about the development of the situation comedy, the sitcom, and characters, and the fact that if you have a 30-minute comedy with a laugh track. It's not like you can delve into huge, serious issues and have really, really well-rounded characters. And so we end up getting a lot of archetypes, a lot of tropes to help 
audiences quickly digest characters. Um, and she uses the example of a show like MASH, which is obviously male-focused, male-driven. It's another show that I watched all the time with my parents growing up. But how female characters are basically just sort of on the periphery. The, the show focuses on male archetypes of, you know, the doctor, the priest, the naive guy, the funny guy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as we move forward and both audiences and showrunners start to get a little savvier, that's when we start to see the development of women-centric shows like Mary Tyler Moore and, of course, Golden Girls. And you start to see the development of archetypal female characters as well. And Kaylor breaks down the Golden Girls, into goddess archetypes. Yes, I just said that, goddess archetypes. So she says that Dorothy plays the role of the Athena Minerva figure, who is the warrior, the Amazon, and then Rose is the virginal Artemis, or Diana. And then we have Blanche, obviously, Aphrodite slash Venus, who's always seen women as competition. And then the fourth, for balance, You have Sophia as the dual Sybil Hecate figure, who's the death-dealing mother and wise woman. And she says that from episode to episode, which it's also notable that she's writing this paper while Golden Girls is still on the air. Right. She's clearly a Golden Girls fan, I would assume. From episode to episode, this triad balanced out by Sophia the fourth, the Sybil, it shifts to allow the Juno aspect of the mother of the gods to be subsumed sometimes by Dorothy as the strongest person and by Sophia as the wisest. So if you didn't think that we could get all academic (laughs) and really intense about the Golden Girls, well, we will take you this paper and raise you a thesis (laughs) because there is also a thesis uh, written far more recently comparing uh, Golden Girls and Sex in the City, because that is also a show that comes up a lot when you talk about uh, Golden Girls, is that it paved the way for a show like Sex in the City, which is also about four women not living together, but brunching together. Yeah, but also pushing important issues that women already talk about in their day-to-day lives, pushing those to the forefront and normalizing it. Yeah, you have visible gay characters, even more visible through Stanford Blanche on, or Stanford Blatch on Sex and the City. You also, yeah, have the issues of aging, sex, sex, (laughs) a lot dealing with sex, workplace issues, and uh, that paper also does its own character comparisons of Sex in the City, the four Sex in the City characters versus the four Golden Girls. And you have Dorothy as Miranda, Blanche, obviously, as a Samantha, Rose is Charlotte, and then, surprise, surprise, Sophia is Carrie, but that's not necessarily the best fit. Yeah, I didn't think that was the best fit, but I also thought that would fit with Kaler's hypothesis or, you know, positing that Dorothy and Sophia are kind of shifting back and forth in terms of the power balance. And I think it's the same in terms of which character they would fit into on Sex and the City. Well, and speaking of the power balance, this is one interesting thing that jumped out to me in Kaler's paper. She was talking about stage direction in uh, sitcoms and specifically drawing room sitcoms, as they're called, like Frasier and like Golden Girls, where they take place in living rooms. You also see this in the Cosbys a lot. And she says that a lot of times in these styles of sitcoms, characters always enter 
the screen from the left because it's a, le- a less confrontational position to come from, I guess, because as readers, we always move from the left to the right and things like that. But in the kitchen scenes, Dorothy is usually posted up on the right to emphasize her sharp and biting comments because she is directly confrontational. Yeah. So, again, I know this is getting really intense about the Golden Girls, but hey, now you can watch it on an even deeper level. <laughs> you you certainly can, and I know I can't wait to go home and watch it on a deeper level in my nightgown. But, um, I mean, talking about the set specifically, this it sort of ties into the way that these women are able to discuss certain topics, including sexuality, theirs and the people, that of the people around them. But a lot of the show is not only set in their living room, but also in that very safe space, the kitchen table, over cheesecake. And it really, like, it seems silly, women sitting around a table with cheesecake talking about sex, but it's not silly. It's that the, doesn't sound silly. That sounds great to it me. It sounds great. And it's also what we see in Sex in the City, but it's that safe space that gives them a platform to talk about important issues like the sexuality of older women. Until you have the condoms, condoms, condoms episode where this is happening in a drugstore scene where all of a sudden they're talking about this in public. So it becomes even more of a comedic violation because they're no longer sitting around the kitchen eating cheesecake. They're talking about condoms in public. Yeah, basically, uh, the, the women are getting ready to go on a cruise and they're at the drugstore and they're like, all right, do we have everything? We've got sunscreen. We've got this and that. And uh, Blanche raises the issue of, well... Uh, we might want to buy some protection to take on the trip. And of course, the comedicness is that Rose is like, what do you mean protection? Well, like men, what do we, what do you mean? And they, Dorothy, trying to be subtle, points over to the display where the condoms are and is like, it's the, the thing over there. And she's like, what is it? The stockings? And finally, uh, Dorothy just loses it and screams condoms, condoms, condoms. And this creates a scene, and then they have a confrontation with the sort of jerky uh, cashier man at the pharmacy, and it just served to be an incredible moment for these women who, yeah, previously had been in the kitchen talking about all of their important topics away from people, away from the public, and now here they are screaming about condoms and sex while being older women in public. Well, and I think it was Thomas J. West at Media Commons who talked about how this was an example of women, rather than competing sexually between each other, they consistently, it's another example of them consistently relying on their relationships to essentially like navigate their relationships with men and also their sexuality. Yeah, and he writes that it goes against the traditional patriarchal norms that attempt to prevent elderly women from expressing, still less enjoying, their bodies, especially in the public sphere. And this is part of why Megan Kearns, who was writing over in Bitch Magazine in September 2013, says that Golden Girls was ahead of its time. She basically wrote a love letter to Golden Girls about this whole sexuality thing and how awesome and open these women are. Yeah, and so it's not so surprising then that a lot of people think that the Golden Girls left behind a feminist legacy. And Rue McClanahan actually talked about this in 2009 because uh, she's talking about how all the fan mail 
that she gets and how she believes that shows like Maud, which, uh, like you mentioned at the top of the show, Caroline, had that historic abortion episode and it was actually how B. Arthur came on to Golden Girls, um, how she believes shows like Maud and Golden Girls gave women, quote unquote, permission to be freer. Yeah, she wrote that she was receiving fan mail that basically said, thank you for allowing me to act and dress like I feel. Because, I mean, these women, these characters did have some fabulous outfits on the show. And uh, she says, this is Rue McClanahan talking, she says, because in those days when you were over 50, you were supposed to be wearing certain types of clothes and behaving a certain way. And women were writing saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for the freedom, for the release, for the permission. And when B. Arthur died a few years ago, a lot of her obituaries and eulogies and just the outpouring of love uh, that was written about her focused on her being a feminist icon. I think partially because of her physicality as being that tall, broad-shouldered, husky-voiced woman, the Amazon of the group. And even Rue McClanahan said, 37 years ago, she showed me how to be very brave in playing comedy. Although what we haven't talked about, we won't get into, but apparently B. Arthur was a touch difficult on the set sometimes. She was a, a force to be reckoned with yeah. as well. She was she was a serious lady. She was a very serious lady. But you can tell that in that picture of her from World War II when she was a truck driving Marine. Exactly. You don't mess with B. Yeah, B was not to be reckoned with. And by the way, B was a name she gave herself uh, after Beatrice because she said Beatrice would look better on a marquee than her real name, Bernice. Whoa. Yeah, so B, she actually was called B, like the letter B as a nickname for Bernice, but she chose Beatrice and shortened it to B-E-A. Man, she just woman. She did whatever she wanted. That's right. That's right. And it's also been cool, this is a side note as well, how I believe Betty White is the only surviving member now mm-hmm. of the Golden Girls, and she recently has gone through her own career resurgence. Not that she ever went away. I mean, she was has been working for forever, even before the Golden Girls. But it was a couple years ago that there was the Facebook campaign, successful campaign, to get her on Saturday Night Live hosting. Mm-hmm. And then she started up with Hot in Cleveland. And all of a sudden, everybody re-loves Betty White. Well, Hot in Cleveland, which is another Golden Girls-esque Show Not that they're all retired, but Betty White basically plays the Sophia role as the the older matriarch of the group. And you have these middle aged women who are going about their lives dealing with issues, same issues, issues of sexuality, of friendship on and on and on. And so it's it's interesting to see that Betty White has sort of come full circle. Yeah. And in terms of TV, it was clearly groundbreaking and influential in terms of paving the way for other female ensemble shows like Sex and the City, which we've mentioned, but also shows like Living Single, Girlfriends, Designing Women, which came on around the same time, and also Girls. Yeah, Designing Women, man. Oof, one of my favorites. I went back, so in in researching for this episode on Golden Girls, I, of course, had to stop and watch... All of the videos of all of Julia Sugarbaker's like amazing tirades that she goes on and just bites people's heads off so great. She's so amazing. Yeah, she's she's pretty incredible. But anyway, um, back to Golden Girls, which I think it's it's incredible and it says a lot that it has stood the test of time, that it is still syndicated, and that it is still an incredibly popular syndicated show. And it's groundbreaking just in its simplicity. 
And can I toss out one final fun fact? Please. Okay, so for Arrested Development fans listening, Mitch Hurwitz, the creator of Arrested Development, wrote for the Golden Girls and... One little detail in Arrested Development that's an homage to the Golden Girls is that the rehab facility that Lucille has to go to for her drinking problem is called Shady Pines, which is the retirement facility, the much loathed retirement home that they always threaten Sophia with if she ever gets too out of line. Right. But she'll have to go to Shady Pines. So with that... <laughs> do we open it up? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, folks. I know that there are Golden Girls fans listening. Let us know your thoughts. Who is your favorite Golden Girl? Sophia was a fan favorite when the show was on TV. I, myself, I am partial to Dorothy. Yeah, me too. As a tall lady with a sometimes husky voice. <laughs> I am a short lady, but I love Dorothy. Although I love a good St. Olaf story. Yeah. Let's be honest. So <laughs> write us all of your Golden Girls thoughts. Mom stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them. We cannot wait to read them. And if you don't want to write us a letter, you can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a couple of letters here about our episode, spicy in quotes, Latinas. And this one comes from a young woman who would like to remain anonymous, who says, I'm so glad you created that last podcast because I think this really hits home for me, specifically when it comes to identifying as Latina. I have a very Latina name and growing up in the Midwest was really challenging. I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and was constantly stereotyped, even by faculty at my public school. In second grade, I remember one of the superintendents at my elementary school waiting for me in the morning to help me translate for a foreign exchange student from Latin America, completely assuming that I spoke Spanish, though never stopping to ask if I did. These are the same people that had my older sibling sing La Cucaracha for our school. Anyway, I think because my mother is from Colombia, everyone assumed that I spoke Spanish when in reality, my mother had only just moved to America and was concerned about her own assimilation, so she practiced and spoke English 24-7 inside and outside of the house. I can't tell you how obnoxious it was to constantly correct my Caucasian peers in school and tell them in my authentic and natural Midwestern accent, no, I don't speak Spanish, I'm not from Colombia and still watch their eyes wander to my test scores in Spanish class for comparison as if I was keeping my fluency a vengeful secret or something. Then when I left St. Louis for college in L.A., I was critiqued from the other end. Most of the time I met a Latino or Hispanic person, I would be told, quote, you need to learn Spanish, it's part of your culture, or I would be told that I'm too whitewashed, and I would think to myself, but I'm from St. Louis. I'm an American who has been to Colombia only once for two weeks. That makes no sense. And the weird thing is, if I'm dressed up to go out for the night, my family or others will say that it's my Latina identity. That's why I look so good. And when I stop guys from harassing me on the street or don't let them get away with spanking me, yeah, that happened once, I get told my don't take crap from other people attitude is my fiery Latina side. So when you mention Jessica Alba not wanting to be labeled as Latina, I think I can understand why. I get tired of being told I'm not Latina enough and being asked if I can strike up conversation in English or Spanish with a random Colombian person that, quote, my friend so-and-so knows, and being told that any part of me that fits the positive Latina stereotype is attributed to a culture and heritage I know very little about. It's quite a conundrum. Love the podcast, and I can't get enough of it. So thank you. Um, Alrighty, I have a letter here from Gianna. 
She says, your most recent podcast on spicy Latina women was of particular interest to me. I live in New York City where I help to run a female-driven, gender-focused Shakespeare company, SpicyWitchProductions.com, run out of a Puerto Rican cultural center on the Lower East Side of New York. My mother is Puerto Rican and my father is of Italian descent. I have a very Italian name, so much so that when I began to try to get connected to cultural arts organizations, I had to start using my mother's maiden name in order to be taken seriously. Additionally, I came out like my father and have much lighter coloring than my mother. People would often mistake my mother for my nanny growing up. I don't speak Spanish, as my mother experienced so much racism from my father's side of the family, she didn't wish for me to be any more different than I already was. Sometimes I feel as if I float between cultures. Auditioning in New York is very interesting. I'm considered what the industry calls ethnically ambiguous. Too light for some things, too ethnic looking for other things. I'm often called not Latina enough to audition for Latina roles, and I've stopped trying to audition for these types of roles as I'm often made to feel like I'm a fake. What I hate even more is upon hearing of my ethnic background is the slew of assumptions made about me. With that mix, you must have a temper. Wow, what a spicy mix. You must be super passionate. Uh Uh-oh, Puerto Rican and Italian, we better watch out. That must be the Puerto Rican in you. I love both my cultures. I love being Puerto Rican. I'm tired of having to prove myself and fit into this physical preconception of what it is to be Puerto Rican, especially by other Puerto Ricans. My own boyfriend, who is Puerto Rican, has made comments to me about helping me be a real Puerto Rican. All of this is highly offensive. I am lucky enough that my mother is a fierce role model who has helped me navigate all of this. However, I would like to note, I recognize my own white privilege in all of this, unlike my mother, who has had to deal with blatant racism and is in a constant state of self-cultural censorship. I do not have to do this. I am white and therefore am allowed to claim my ethnicity without any real lasting social or economical repercussions. Wow, so thank you for your story, Jana. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as our blogs, videos, and all of our podcasts, including this one, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 